Hi, everybody. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. This is episode 86. It's our first of the new year, 2022. Yeah, 2022. Hi, Dr. Yeah. Scott. How are you? Hi, Dr. Shiloh. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. Thanks happy for new- coming back. Yes. Thank you so much and Happy New Year to everyone. And I'm not going to jinx it, but I feel like we've got a good year ahead of us. I'm just going to put that out there. Good. Uh, going to, um, that's going to be my mantra. It's going to be a good year. It's it going to be a good year. God damn it. It's going to be a good year. <laughs> So we've got a topic this week that many people have asked us about. And I honestly, in looking at it now, how did we wait until episode 86 to do this particular episode? Because it is everything that we talk about and some of the darkest of humanity that doesn't necessarily end in somebody's death, but it is a crime nonetheless. And it leaves a trail of wreckage. And the subject, of course, because you've already clicked on us, the subject is catfishing. But it's not just this superficial understanding of catfishing that happens just recently in the advent of online dating. This has been going on in various forms for decades, and we've got a couple, really, we've got several examples, but the two examples we're going to focus on this week are horrific in very different ways. Yeah, absolutely. I think it does have a lot of tie-ins to concepts we have talked about before, and we're going to bring it all together yes. in in this area and, and specific. Specifically, people have just really been interested in what is this phenomenon about? And we want to look at, like we've done in other episodes, we want to look at both the profile, as it were, of the perpetrator and the profile of the victim. I mean, it's just fascinating. Like we've brought it before for MLMs or cults or or con men and their victims. So Mm -hmm. yeah, definitely exciting stuff. Before we get to that, just a little bit of housekeeping. We are only going to have one get vocal this month. Why? Well, because this weekend I'm going to be living my best Twin Peaks life in Washington. (laughs) I will be out of state. Don't even snicker at me, Scott. <laughs> I'm, sh- I'm not. I like if I could still go to Comic Con and not be crushed by you know ten thousand people, I would go. So I'm not going to a Twin Peaks festival or anything. I'm oh, you're going- not. No, I'm actually going to visit my grandmother and some other family up there, and I might partake in a little you know, dragging my family around North Bend for some sightseeing, which is oh, where, of course, cool. they filmed most of the series. It's just been a while since I've been up that way and we have a really nice place to stay and just going to be a little getaway and then a little bit of visiting with family. So, right. so we will not have a get vocal this weekend. Our get vocal in January, though, will be January 22nd. So following our next episode where we will be joined by Greg and Daniel, hosts of the LA Meekly podcast, not LA Weekly, LA Meekly, <laughs> for those of you here that uh, have read LA Weekly before. But their show is essentially a comedy history podcast all about Los Angeles. They've covered a ton of interesting facts and occurrences about our beloved city. And they've been podcasting for a very long time. Like these guys have been in the game since I feel like podcasting started. So oh, cool. I didn't know that. That's yeah, even better. I, I love that. I discovered them, I don't know how, I think one of their first episodes I listened to was all about earthquakes in Southern California. And ever since then, you know, just foods of LA, the LA public central library, just everything. And they're hysterical. So wonderful. 
please go subscribe to their show. Give them a listen. They did a ton of true crime and sort of spooky stuff between October and December of this year. Get a little familiar with them before they join us later this month. Wonderful. So this week, as we usually do now in the last probably 15 episodes we've done, we want to focus on trigger warnings. We have no trigger warnings, (laughs) except maybe anger. Yeah, right. Yeah, you may be very triggered. By yeah, this. I'm more triggered probably than our listeners will be. Yeah, I think we have steered away from these situations that end in really gruesome crimes, even though it's still troubling, of course. But we we don't have a specific trigger warning for you guys this time. However, we do want to start off with an example. Yannick Glauden, a 31-year-old French national, is currently imprisoned in the United Kingdom after posing as a gay man on social media and hookup sites. She is a she. She presented herself as a man, got her victims to send her nudes, and then sent the photos to their families. And in May of 2017, Yannick used the moniker Stephen St. Pierre. That's that's the name <laughs> she came up with. That doesn't, yeah. even, that doesn't even sound like a real name. That's That sounds like a like a a stripper <laughs> name or not that there's anything wrong with stripper names or stage names but it doesn't sound and who uses names on grinder like why not booty dog 6969 or something you don't <laughs> you don't use your own name con <laughs> St. Pierre, I don't know. Sounds a little regal. Maybe has a little flashiness to it. Okay. All <laughs> okay. right. I'll, anyway, I'll give you let that. Let me finish. Let me finish. Go ahead. Go ahead. So Yannick used Stephen to get her victims to exchange phone numbers and email addresses with her in order to send the nudes. She would then manipulate her victim into providing her with his CV or his resume as he was looking for work, which is a huge mistake. Way too much I personal mean, information on that, yeah. right? Yeah. And her very first victim became suspicious around December of 2017 after seven months of exchanges and attempted to cease all communications with her. And this ended up triggering Yannick and began a serious months long series of harassments, which included sending the victim's nudes to his friends, friends of friends, and even his stepfather. And it gets worse. She then began stalking him around London. That's where this took place. She would take photos of him and then immediately email them to him, creating, of course, a real environment of fear and vulnerability. If you're getting emails on your phone of places you have just been or where you're at. And the the thing about this is that he didn't even know that this was a woman. So you could look around. It's kind of the perfect disguise if you're out there stalking someone, if they're thinking that they're looking for another man and you just go undetected. What's interesting, too, is that there's a lot, certainly because it's in London, there is CCTV all over the city, all over public transportation, and law enforcement has pulled still images, and you see her and her victim, and her victim's face has been blurred out, Uh and you see multiple photos of her stalking and looking Mm. at her phone, sending the photographs. It's just really chilling. It gets worse, though, because... There's a second victim. And in February of 2018, Yannick created two additional profiles, Harry Wars and Nick (laughs) Guell or Guell. Again, not the most believable names at all. And she used these profiles to begin a relationship with her second victim and his ex-boyfriend, who became her third victim. After her second victim lost interest, she managed to file a false police report accusing his boyfriend of sexually abusing a minor, as well as accusing victim two of associating with a quote unquote known prostitute. Like, is that a legal, is that a legal term? 
on maybe in the UK. Okay. Associating. I don't know. Okay. Maybe that's it. So she went on to file another criminal report claiming to be victim two's boss, stating that victim two was known to have illegal child sex images on his computer. As the events continued to escalate, Yannick told the victim that she had put a price on him and that she hoped to have him castrated. And it continues to escalate and progress. She then contacts victim two's friends, asserting that there was a bounty on him, and then also posted on other websites as victim two seeking sex. This is so convoluted. Like, I can't, the energy that this would take, like... I can't. So she was essentially directing strangers to his home. And then Yannick was eventually arrested in London, but bailed out and attempted to return to France. Luckily, she was extradited back to the UK and finally sentenced to 13 months in prison for her crimes after pleading guilty to all of the charges. The judge also put in place a lifelong restraining order, preventing Yannick from any and all contact with the victims and all individuals connected to the case. So I don't know, maybe a better question is what is the criminal charge for just fucking with people in their lives? Because this is very, very twisted. Well, I mean, she, in this case, while we don't know UK law, it's not as familiar to us as some of our local law. I would say that that would constitute like harassment, there's stalking there, there's threats, there's coercion, you know, trying to get using, there's sending pornographic material without the owner's permission. There's a lot of charges I think that could be brought up, but it's, there's also the potential, like I know one of the things that we're dealing with in my day-to-day work is this issue of swatting where Uh people are setting up very potentially dangerous environments by making false threats and you know it has led to the loss of life as well Mm -hmm. this could easily have done that as well she could have really really placed somebody in danger making the types of allegations she made about these victims yeah it it definitely gives me the vibe similar to like when we covered stalking where people are doing these little behaviors that all together is just horrifying for the victim and upending their lives. I mean, it's really like one of those sinister movies where someone's just trying to ruin someone else's life, but there's not a lot that's really illegal. It's just... Yeah, it's death by a thousand cuts in a way. (laughs) Right, right. So we start with this example because it's one of the very few that actually led to criminal charges and a sentence. Although, I mean, what did you say? It was 17 months. I'd consider this very light for the hell. yeah. That she put these men through. And and it's good that there's lifelong restraining orders and limitations on what she can do. But clearly, and we're going to get into the psychology of this a little bit later, very, very twisted, lonely individual who was playing out some real rage against these victims. For some reason, she felt justified. Mm -hmm. So where did this term of catfishing come from? The alleged origin of the term comes from supposedly a shipping and fishing term. And so in the movie Catfish which led to a series catfish. They're interviewing a guy who says, oh, and he says very, very assuredly that it came about from large-scale fishing operations in Alaska that would ship these enormous tankers full of live cod across the ocean to China. And they found that the end result was poor because the fish were tightly packed. They were all the same species. They would have arrived in China with really poor flesh, muscle tone, and lack of flavor. And one experienced fisherman suggested that the catfish should be kept in tanks as well because catfish are known to be annoying as hell to other types of aquatic (laughs) life. That's true. And they would nip at the cod, keeping them active and stimulated, resulting in much more tasty meat at the end of the voyage. Thus, the term was coined for some types of people in life who keep you guessing and keep you thinking. I, yeah, I don't know about this. I, I wonder... 
how much of that is true. I, one, I can't imagine that they don't just freeze the fish and ship it over there. <laughs> right. Well, Two, cod has no flavor, so come on. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think that there, we have some more information a little bit, but it, it found to yeah. not be not be I accurate mean, at all. It's cute. Kind of. I mean, it kind of makes sense, but. Well, cod, it also, one's a salt water, one's a fresh water. It doesn't make sense that that would. Yeah, but suffice to say, this isn't really what the catfishers are doing. I mean, they're not doing it to stimulate others. They're doing it to stimulate themselves, which we'll have a lot more on later. And the more contemporary use of the term comes from Catfish, the the documentary film that you're talking about, and then was followed by the very successful MTV reality show, where essentially the, the subject of the film, of the documentary film, then goes on to follow other people who are being catfished and are concerned that they might be having an, an online relationship that isn't legitimate and they kind of track down the catfisher and confront them. And while MTV has a relatively moderate audience these days, the term and the the show really took off after the experience of, I don't know if you remember this, Scott, but Notre Dame football player Monty Teo, who was extensively right. catfished. Right. It was pretty high profile. And he thought that he was in a relationship, an online relationship with a woman. And it got very serious over a number of months. And this all happened in 2012 when he was a senior at Notre Dame and was particularly twisted as the fake girlfriend eventually led him to believe that she died of cancer. Anyway, we're, we're not going to get into that story. It's yeah. very sad. It's very, very interesting. So now the term has a much narrower definition than it did when originally described in the movie and now refers to an individual or group of individuals who create essentially a fake online profile in order to con someone by way of seduction. Good. Well, I'm glad you're not buying into the story of that <laughs> origin of the term because it's all been proved to be completely BS. Oh. Yeah, because the story, the, the the term catfishing goes back way earlier since actually early 20th century in 1913. Religious writer Nevinson told a story called The Catfish where he compares this catfish anecdote to other allegorical Christian stories. And he said catfish is Christianity itself, without which the soul of Europe would have degenerated into a flabbiness, lethargy and desperate peace. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, it's very weird how that term has kind of been gone around. So it doesn't, I mean, it's become its own thing. It has really nothing to do with what catfish actually do. It's just the term, right? So, but what is all this about? Like, where can we get to an agreement of what it is about these entities pretending to be somebody else in order to what? What is, is it about attention? Is it about sexual gratification, sexual stimulation, emotional stimulation or gratification? Is it about money? Well, and of course the answer is it depends. Right. We, I feel like we never get our audience a definitive answer. No. It's always, it, de- it depends within the constellation of behaviors. There right? you go. There you go. So let's look at the psychology of these perpetrators and what drives them perhaps. So the most recent research shows that the foundational motivation for deception and misrepresentation in electronic and social media based dating is the desire to present a more desirable image in order to attract partners. In other words, this is the online persona is more attractive and the person doing it wants to present this. So this perceived image can be both the physical photographs or the quote unquote personality that they're creating online. Other motivations for this type of deception includes avoidance of conflict, personal gain and attention or anonymity. So kind of disappearing into their own world, which is what I saw a lot with some of these cases. I mean, and look at that. How fascinating is it that your last two points 
attention or anonymity. I mean, complete right. opposites, right? Yes, in a way. But this, there are so many vibes here that remind me of when you and I were working with offenders who have been convicted of possessing child sexual abuse images in that like the stimulation and the attention and the way they would interact with each other online, but they could do it totally what they thought was totally anonymous. Right. Like it was their own little world. It was escapism. So even though those things are feel like polar opposites, I feel like they also go hand in hand with a lot of online crimes. Got it. Men, when they are perpetrators, they will more frequently lie about finances, relationship goals, hobbies and interests, as well as their own personal attributes. And they're more likely to misrepresent or lie about their positive characteristics when it's likely that they would not meet a prospective date in person. So if they know this isn't going to go in real life, they're lying their butts off about all that stuff. Women are more likely to often lie about or as some of the research shows, misrepresent physical characteristics in online dating. A really interesting quote from the, the article that we pulled states, quote, participants also rationalize their personal misrepresentation through the concept of multiple selves referenced from a broad temporal spectrum. In other words, oh yeah, that's an old picture of me. I'm a little heavier now. So there's some rationalization going on there. So they're rationalizing. Well, it is a picture of me. It's just 10 years old. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's not still different. me. Right, right. And how Maybe dare I've you judge me for not looking <laughs> like... <laughs> right, right. So fortunately, there's a good bit of research out there that is starting to look at the entire phenomenon of what they're calling in the literature problematic internet use or PIU, which of course can be a wide constellation of behaviors, like you said. For instance, we looked at an article titled The Dark Side of Internet, Preliminary Evidence for the Associations of Dark Personality Traits with Specific Online Activities and Problematic Internet Use. Man, I thought my dissertation was a mouthful. <laughs> That's a big title. It's a great uh, title. Though. It is a great title. This article was written by Drs. Kagan Kirkaburin and Mark D. Griffiths. They developed a study to investigate the relationship of dark triad traits with specific online activities like social media, gaming, gambling, shopping, and sex, and other types of problematic internet use. Again, we go into a deep dive and we find wonderful research out there in just sort of a, another area that we have not navigated necessarily towards. So I was just immersed in this for several days. The findings indicated that being male, of course, was positively associated with higher amounts of online gaming, online sex, including whether it's mutual mutual masturbation mm -hmm. or sex talk or avatars within the frame of a game work, as well as online gambling. And it was negatively associated with social media and online shopping for men, which is interesting when we look at the different types of catfishing attention and relational versus conning or trying to make money. Ah, uh, yes. So narcissism was definitely related to higher social media use. Stop looking at me, Shiloh. I know I'm on <laughs> Facebook all day. And Machiavellianism and Machiavellianism was related to higher online gaming sex and gambling. Sadism was related to online sex and spitefulness was associated with online sex, online gambling and online shopping. Interestingly, I'm going to shop out of spite. Ooh, Damn it. I'm, so I'm going to go anger shop right now. Interestingly, in terms of these examples that we're talking about right now, Machiavellianism and spitefulness were directly and indirectly associated with PIU, problem inter problematic internet use, through gambling, gaming, shopping. Narcissism was indirectly associated with PIU through social media 
use. So that leads me to really consider how much malignant narcissism is present in all forms of catfishing. Yeah. And that desire to present as someone else. So, you know, malignant narcissism can also be covert. It can present in a more passive way than sort of like the more obvious presentation of narcissism. Mm -hmm. So the initial findings in the study indicate that individuals high in the dark triad personality traits may be more likely to or also vulnerable in developing PIU, which is so fascinating. But the study also shows much more research is needed, as always, to closely investigate the associations of the dark personality traits with the specific types of problematic online activities that we're looking at as far as catfishing, right? But I think it's it's a huge start. Right. They got a subject, you know, they they used interviews and Mm -hmm. people participated in this study, which is great. I think that they, like ourselves, what we're saying is they opened up the door and like, oh, wow, here's another connection for further research that needs to be done. Yeah, it's beginning. So we look beyond the influence of dark traits and intentional actions that rise out of what we call antisocial personality disorder. And then we can find the influence of other issues that include like significant mental illness. So an example would be something that we've covered in past episodes known as factitious disorder imposed on self or more commonly known as Munchausen syndrome. So we talked about in the past that there's Munchausen by proxy. And those are behaviors and actions to keep somebody else, like a child, a dependent adult, presenting as ill. And then that person many times does not know that they're being kept ill by the individual with Munchausen by proxy. However, in Munchausen's or FDIS, factitious disorder imposed on self, this is where individuals will fake. They'll intentionally cause disease illness, injury, abuse, or even psychological trauma to themselves in order to gain sympathy, attention, admiration. And Munchausen syndrome fits within the subclass of factitious disorders with predominantly physical signs and symptoms, but patients also have a history, a very significant history of recurrent hospitalizations, constantly traveling so that they can go to different hospitals, different doctors, and very dramatic, extremely improbable tales of their past experiences. And like we've said before, this is all based on, you know, there's the diagnostic name, but they also call it Munchausen Mm -hmm. because of this fictional European character who had all these unbelievable adventures. Yes. Yes. So circling back to just a brief review of dark traits, antisocial personality disorder. This would be an individual who repeatedly violates the rights of others through actions of intimidation and dishonesty. So right there, we have a description of the behaviors that were presented in the opening example. Although I'm not sure there wasn't more going on, perhaps even in some terms of like borderline personality traits due to the really intense desire for revenge that we were seeing the person seem to be triggered. Those two things can exist together. You can be both antisocial and borderline at the same time. And I have another example of that um, later on, that intense desire for revenge or when the person starts pushing back a little bit. that you really see them turn. But antisocial personality disorder also can include things like impulsivity, the lack of inhibition, especially on actions that can be harmful to others. And of course, we also see traits like hostility, significant irritability, agitation, aggression, or even threats and the perpetration of violence. So the present factor of ASPD that is really doing the heavy lifting for this example, I think would be the lack of empathy for others, as well as a lack of remorse about causing any harm to others. Okay. So one of the other things that's coming out in the research we were able to find is the presence of attachment disorders. 
or at least the theory that attachment disorders really play a big part of what can bring people into problematic internet use. So attachment disorders, we haven't really touched on those in the show before. I think we've mentioned them maybe in passing, but they're emotional disturbances, you know, that lead to psychiatric diagnoses that develop in young children where the kids really have significant problems in emotional and stable connections to others. That's most early detected by caregivers and parents. So it's been studied extensively for decades. And there's tons of research that shows attachment styles can affect an individual for their entire life. And for anybody that's interested in more about this, there's phenomenal YouTube videos about how kids can be classified in different attachment styles. So just go into YouTube or Google strange situation attachment, and you'll see the original studies from like 30, 40 years ago that are really telling. I mean, I think I remember watching those and kind of my jaw dropping going, okay, I see myself in that kid. I remember Mm. being that toddler. So very, very interesting. And in a 2020 study by Mosley, Lancaster and Parker, they analyzed attachment, anxiety, attachment, avoidance, and gender as predictable variables. And the goal was to examine the factors involved to what would lead a person to becoming a perpetrator or a victim of online deception in the form of catfishing. And the final results showed some pretty interesting stuff. Women are much more likely to be targets. Men are more likely to perpetrate, even though interestingly enough, the three examples that we're using today, the, their victims are men. I know. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'm going to talk more about this subject later too. Okay. So higher attachment, anxiety, and avoidance increase the likelihood of being both a catfish perpetrator and a target. However, avoidance was no longer a significant predictor after controlling for attachment anxiety. So for a really brief explanation of what anxious attachment is, we understand it as a really intense and life-affecting fear of abandonment, Mm -hmm. as well as an insecurity about being perceived as underappreciated or having the feeling of being underappreciated. And we're talking about this experience developing very early in the childhood of individuals, but having lifelong consequences. So we are talking about in this example of of an extremely high level of this challenge, and it's not the -the run-of-the-mill of those experiences that the vast majority of children go through and still return to normal life challenges with resiliency. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about exceptions to the general rule, but it's important for this episode to understand that. So this recent study really strongly suggests that many of these catfish relationships are quite long and drawn out, and there may be some degree of relational needs being met for both parties. In my experience of two dear friends being catfished on dating sites, it absolutely was providing something. It was providing a sense of being recognized and a sense of being admired. And these are not people that are not recognized and admired in other parts of their life. They really are. They're wonderful, wonderful people. They're smart people. And yet here was a place of vulnerability for them Mm -hmm. at difficult times in their life. And I wouldn't even say that either of these people were anxiously attached from my experience of them. So I think that that's a very interesting point to make though. So interviews indicate that women are connecting more through the use of e-communication and using it for relationship maintenance. And this may have something to do with women's motivation to persist in that relationship, even when faced with refusal to meet in person or via video. And this constellation increases their likelihood of becoming a catfish target. So it's like a self-perpetuating cycle. 
Mm-hmm. It's like, here we are in now 2022. There's no one that's online that doesn't have a phone with a camera right. that can snap a picture that can turn on video. And yet in these catfishing examples, people will st- say my camera's broken or, oh, the connection's bad. Oh, yeah. And because we have that desire to have that relational need met, we will make allowances for this non-existent person or this person feigning to be someone else. We'll, we'll make that allowance for them that we wouldn't in any other situation. Yes. Well, that, that helps set the stage for the question I think everybody asks with these types of phenomena is how do the victims fall for it? How can I avoid being a victim? What is going on here? Who are they? Who are they? Who right. are the victims? Yeah. Right. So as you mentioned, statistically, women are more likely to be victims of catfishing, although men and women are catfished often. The people that you mentioned that you know personally, were they men? Good question. One is a guy and one is a young woman. Okay. Yeah. The the people I've known and it's been actually through my clinical work have all been men, but I think I work with more men than I work with women. So that's probably how that's happened there. But I have found same thing that they have been people who have been very successful in life, have had accolades and attention and successes in other ways. It really comes down to like where they're at at that time, which is pretty common when we talk about these issues. So researchers suggest that the fact that women are more often victims reflects cultural norms that really still define men as relationship initiators pursuing the women, which then places them in a position to catfish rather than being the target of catfishing as women more likely are. So although catfishing used to be seen more among adults using online dating platforms, we're now seeing it become widespread among teenagers as well. And As you were talking about the very interesting research, and I'm just talking victims here, coming out about people higher in anxiety attachment styles are more prone to both perpetrating, but also to be victims compared with people with more secure attachment styles. So you got into it a little bit, but if I can just back up that attachment theory was developed in the fifties by psychologist, Mary Ainsworth and psychiatrist, John Bowlby, which people probably recognize his name if they're studying psychology. And as you said, it's, it's shaped by our early childhood in response to our relationships with our early caregivers. And we're really seeing those marks of deep fear of abandonment with anxiety attachment style. And how we see that play out when they're adults is maybe often worrying if their partner is going to leave them. Think about being very hungry for validation. Like it could be when your partner doesn't text you back fast enough that- People I feel, feel very anxious. I just feel attacked by everything <laughs> oh, you're saying. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Getting too close to home. Right. <laughs> yeah. If, if you feel like people or your partner isn't texting you back fast enough, there's a lot of anxiety that goes with that. Constantly feeling like your partner doesn't care enough about you. Well, that now I... I was not prepared for that line that you put in there because it's been a while since I looked at attachment stuff, but mm-hmm. that's really interesting. It just pulls me in another direction in another rabbit hole okay. is attachment styles and IP and intimate partner violence. Yeah. Because that's sort of not texting back, not giving you the attention that you think you need. How dare right. you? What are you Ooh. doing? Getting suspicious that yeah. we should loop that in the next time we come around to IPV. Right. We always kind of jump to, to access to stuff, Yes, you know, and it, it could 
it, it could be both, but just think of kind of that neediness or the the clingy behavior. That's what really we're talking about here that that sums up the the attributes of somebody with this attachment style and how they can be primed to be a victim of catfishing. So perhaps concerns of rejection and distrust about one's own self-worth then motivates the deceptive self-presentation that underlies catfish perpetration by really highly anxious individuals and maintaining a relationship without putting the self at risk might also allow for relational closeness while protecting the self. So why anxious individuals are victims of catfishing is a little less clear. Well, I'm just interested by this because that, you know, you and I are both a little leery, but willing to talk about DID and the issue of multiple Mm. personality, but the idea that you are consciously constructing a defensive avatar or archetype or protective shield of a personality that's going to be interacting with this other person. That's fascinating. Yeah. So let's look at, well, actually let's look at psychological impact on victims. And then I want to get into sort of the, why we find that maybe people who are primed in this way do end up falling uh, victim to these these schemes. So as you guys can, I'm sure, imagine the long-term impacts when someone's a victim of catfishing. I mean, this rocks their entire world. And Scott, for you and I and anyone else who has personally known someone who has fallen victim to this, it really does. I mean, we're talking emotional intimacy and trust that has been completely shattered and broken. And maybe even emotional intimacy is built up more than it would be in an in real life relationship because you have nothing but just communication happening and that reinforcement rather than just kind of being in the presence with someone, maybe not more, but maybe different. You know, it's based on verbals. It's based on constant communication. And so when that's broken, this can really be quite damaging to somebody's mental health of, of course, it's going to depend on the level of the emotional investment and the perceived closeness and vulnerability, et cetera. But it can really impact future relationships, both personal and professional, because what we see is a breakdown of trust through a very extreme betrayal. And as we see with other scam victims, the embarrassment, shame, and regret is present. And we know those feelings are very, very powerful and run very, very deep for both men and women. But really for men, it's it's really hard to come to terms with shame, particularly. There's also this idea of feeling a lot of anger at yourself because how did you fall for a non-existent person? I mean, it's not a non-existent person, but it's a different person. And so there, there can be a lot of negative self-talk, a lot of issues with sense of self and self-esteem and and all of those. I mean, I'm just kind of conceptualizing in my head if this was the reason somebody came into therapy and I was treating them clinically, all of the things that I would have to list out that we would have to try and work on as part of a treatment plan. It's just, it's going to be very multi-layered. So with this, you can imagine anxiety and depression are going to be the most common sort of disorders that individuals like this present with. Something unique, again, to online crimes, which I'm kind of feeling like with victims of child sexual abuse images is the fear and the constant worry that all of that stuff that's on the internet or the information and photos, because, you know, we talk about people exchanging photos and nude photos that is out there forever. 
that the perpetrator could put it back up online somewhere. And there's really this, this sense of, I don't want to say paranoia, a, a consistent, legit worry for people for years that where is my information and where is it going to end up one day? So that's something that's pretty unique to this. So we talked about the foundation of attachment styles. I want to talk about some other issues and just human nature and why we do the things we do. And the first one is why do we trust people? Research in the area of trust, both psychologically and economically, argues that trust leads to individual well-being as well as smooth societal functioning, right? We trust a lot throughout our day and it's very important to our functioning and feeling safe and secure. So when you turn your faucet on, you trust that water is going to come out. When you go to a store or to the market and pay for goods, you trust that you're going to get something that you can use or put in your body and be safe and be secure. I mean, we have to go about our day believing in these things. You and I have to to think the internet's going to work when we are going to record now because we don't do it in person anymore. Well, we have, yeah, I, this is fascinating. We have to trust that these certain basics that we expect in Western world populations in certain areas of the country and certain areas of financial strata, you're just expecting this. So there's an mm -hmm. expectation, there's trust, then there's an assumption. And I would also posit that we live in a time now where that is starting to erode mm -hmm. and people can't really trust a, a lot of things that are out there. And yet here we have this strange reaction where people are more willing to believe in this fantasy that is created by someone else, even yeah. when loved ones are around them going, this is not real. This is not real. Right. right. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, it was proven that, you know, a very high percentage of things that came out of our last president's mouth were false. And yet people still chose to trust it and continue believing it. I know that's a very like political statistic to throw out there, but there is a psychology behind why people continue to believe huge lies that would otherwise disrupt their life if they chose to believe something different, even if yeah, it's true. cognitive dissonance, but then cognitive, there's a point, there's a spectrum of cognitive dissonance where you can choose. Yeah. Well, no, like, well, I continue to believe this, even though I'm faced with facts and data. Right. Well, I'm going to question that. I'm going to, yeah. So it's interesting that people across the spectrum, though, because one of the, my acquaintances, quite conservative and quite far right and still a great guy, love him to death. And yet he fell for one of these that was just like the idea that, you know, you are in a relationship with a 26 year old model who's going to come and live with you in yeah. one of the rural states in America. It's like, that's not going to happen, dude. It's yeah. just not. Yeah. So Rotter has done a lot of work in this area. Um, again, if you're a psychology major, <laughs> he also did the locus of control scale. So you recognize his name from that. He developed the interpersonal trust scale and his research, essentially, I mean, the bottom line is that he finds that people who are highly trusting are also very trustworthy people themselves. So we trust others when we know we're trustworthy and we can't comprehend that we could live in a world where other, where people are deceiving us constantly. So that makes us very uncomfortable. So it's more comfortable to say, Hey, 
people are good, people are trusting. Additionally, research shows that most of the time people actually do tell the truth, but it's not because it's the right thing to do. The research shows that it's the potential of getting caught and the consequences that come with that, that keep us from lying. We actually stay with me, keep tracking. We risk losing trust. If we lie, that's one of the consequences. So it's why we don't do it. So you're motivated, not out of altruism or being a better person. You're motivated in order to keep up this false persona that is not necessarily a false online persona. It's who you are and who you walk through life by, which is very weird because you and I had a shared experience. We won't talk about it on this episode, <laughs> but we had someone in our life, right? Who, yeah. who presented as something radically yes. different. Yes. And when you and I and several other people put the puzzle pieces together, it was mind boggling. Yeah. How yeah. much we had all been bamboozled by this individual. Right. right. Yeah. And I would say we're also motivated because we don't want to suffer consequences. And you so, want to see the best in people. Uh, right, right, oh, well, right. You're, no, saying, I mean, we're, you're saying the perpetrator doesn't yeah, want we're, to. Yeah, we're okay. motivated not to lie because we don't want to suffer the consequences. It's just too hard. And of course, as we've covered before, humans are really good at telling when people are being truthful, but we are terrible at telling when people are lying. And I'm That's not going to get into that research, but just bottom line. So yeah. essentially, I mean, to see the good in people and to trust each other has been at the core of our survival forever. We need to rely on one another, evolutionarily speaking, to survive. And we continue that today, probably more in terms of just emotional survival and moving through the world. Now, if you don't want to blame it on your attachment style or that we're naturally willing to trust, you can blame it on your brain because brain structure, <laughs> there are places in your brain that neuroscientific research shows are hardwired to trust others. The study that I looked at that really pinpoints this is it was a 2015 study called Computational Sub straits of social value and interpersonal collaboration. And that was in the Journal of Neuroscience. And they were able to pin down two specific brain regions that actively engage when someone thinks that they are trusting a close friend. And in that we see increased activity in the ventral striatum, which it's like the key pathway in human reward processing and positive emotions. And then the other part of the brain is the medial prefrontal cortex, which is associated with how we perceive another person's mental state. Also a bit of like consolidating memories and decision-making happens here, but really it's about like reading someone else and their mental state. So conversely, having your trust betrayed can also lack, for lack of a better term, short circuit your neurobiology and make it really difficult to trust again. So that's why and people I feel so off kilter yeah. when this happens. I see that in doing couples work a lot. When there's oh, been yeah. a betrayal, oh. it is really, really hard oh many God. times to reestablish that. It's no matter, and no matter how hard both people are working on it, they're working on reestablishing it. But man, it has just changed the brain chemistry. I think I'm going to start saying that because you know how the victim of the betrayal is just so obsessive and cannot get enough questions answered about what happened in order uh, to move on. It it's is the worst. so debilitating. It is for everyone. I mean, especially for yes. them. I feel badly, like, because one of the main things I'll say in a situation like that is I'll say, you will never get enough answers to satisfy you. No right. answer is ever, in fact, every answer you get beyond a certain point is only going to lead you to more rumination. Yep. And it doesn't matter that I'm stating that 
they are still have the experience and they have to do the work individually to start building that trust again, which is basically like, hey, you have to go rewire your brain. I know. Maybe I'll start busting out a chart of the brain and okay, this is your ventral stri- striatum yeah. and the- <laughs> it's not your fault. <laughs> It's, it's all here in brain structure. And then I, I think there's some element of the halo effect here as well. And the, essentially the halo effect is kind of this notion of what is beautiful is good in that we make positive judgments on an individual's character based on their physical attractiveness. So if we see someone as physically attractive, we unconsciously perceive them as intelligent, kind, responsible, successful, and trustworthy. Right. So in catfishing, I'm like, okay, you're you're probably getting a picture of a pretty decently attractive person because that's the whole point, right? And so you're going to go boom, halo effect, trustworthiness. We tend to find interactions with attractive people also more rewarding and we hold attractive people in a higher regard. And I hold you in such high regard, Dr. Oh, Scott. Thank you. It's because of my skincare routine. That's why you trust me so much. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. If you remember at the very end, as we're saying goodbye, remind me skincare routine. I have something. Okay. Um, I mean, but you're talking about something that actually is has deep roots in human evolution and human mm-hmm. development because children, even infants are wired to respond to facial symmetry, which right. is generally like you can look at somebody who has from wildly different genetic background from you and maybe you don't find it attractive, but the more symmetrical it is, the more positive you will respond to it unconsciously. And infants do this mainly they theorize is because it means there's less likely that there's any disease. The more mm-hmm. symmetrical, sure. the more healthy a person yeah. presents as it's like, oh, this person is trustworthy because they're not carrying a disease that might kill me. So very right. biologically imperative driven, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And I want to quote our friend Jules Hannaford Jules. from her incredible award-winning podcast called Fool Me Twice. Season one was all about romance scams and how she, as an incredibly intelligent, successful woman, fell for it more than once. And this is how she assessed how she was conned. Quote, and I can't do her beautiful Australian accent. So, (laughs) quote, I think that I was naive and I think that I had a level of desperation that really I don't have anymore now that I'm older. I feel that I felt so lonely and so desperate for love and companionship and intimacy that I was really willing to take risks. But also, I think that I just saw the good in everybody and I wanted to see the good in everyone. And I didn't really look beyond the layers to see what was truly there, end quote. So she she really gets into a scary, violent situation as a Very. result of this. It's a great listen. I highly recommend. There's a couple seasons out now, but season one is, is all about this. And her, her daughter produces the podcast and narrates it. And I think it was just, I know this term is overused, but I think it was very brave for her to turn her story into something she could put out there for other people. Well, she makes her, she puts herself in a really vulnerable position or she allows her vulnerabilities to show even in sharing that quote, which is so valuable. Yeah. And again, Jules is a perfect example. Somebody that we met very early in our podcast careers, basically, mm-hmm. and immediately impressed us as like, this is the real deal. This is an intelligent, yeah. successful individual. She's not going to fall for shit at all. And here she is like kind of laying it out like it happened to me. It can happen to anyone depending on where you are in your life and who you are when you got to that place in your life. So look at all these factors and understand when you might have an opportunity or a situation where you're more vulnerable. 
which is what you're going to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. So in summary, I mean, it's a bit of biology, evolution in the ways that we interact with one another and then marry that with someone being in a place where they're open and willing to take risks for love or attention or companionship. And it can really make a situation ripe for being catfished. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. All right. I'm going to get into the first case. Ready, Dr. Scott? I am because we have two bug fuck crazy examples. Very different, (laughs) but frightening. Each of them frightening in their own way. I think mine is more creepy. Yours is actually really scary compared to what could have happened. This case is very elaborate, involves more than one victim in the same scheme. And the catfisher, I don't know, I don't know which is the proper term to use, ended up playing several roles in this whole scheme. And it's fascinating. So Shelly Chartier is a 33 year old middle school dropout from Manitoba, Canada. And she spent years cultivating online personas. She claims that she suffered from social anxiety and at one point didn't leave her house for 11 years. And she cares for her invalid mother and has had very little contact with the outside world. And so she she's an indigenous woman in Canada, lives on a reservation in Manitoba, very like so in the middle of nowhere with a very tiny village. And this really gave me some context to kind of what was going on here once, you know, I kind of read between the lines, but here she was caring for her mother. The two of them were living in filth. I mean, she didn't have, I don't think the means or the time or the priority to really attend to her own personal hygiene or health caused her to lose most of her teeth because she never visited a doctor or a dentist. She, when I say a 33 year old woman, I am not exaggerating at all that she looks 13. I mean, if you're at all interested, ABC um, 2020 did an in-depth report and I'll I'll link the video to the show notes. I can't believe that, you know, this is an adult woman. It's just, it was really, really interesting. So she was finally investigated when her online personas really went too far and she ended up getting involved with some high profile individuals. So in 2011, Chartier tricked NBA star Chris Anderson into a relationship with a 17-year-old model and influencer from California. Anderson, he was really known as the bird man. He's this like big corn-fed country boy known for his mohawk and tattoos and arm flapping on the court. Just a really sort of um, outlandish character in the NBA world. And it all started when Dunn, who's the influencer from California, said that she received a message that appeared to be from Anderson on Facebook. So and we're talking about two people. Yes. Dunn is an actual person. Yes. And of course, we know Chris Anderson is a real person. Yes. And they both became victims of Chartier. Correct. So Dunn says she receives this message from Facebook. It said something like, hey, I see you're a fan because she was following Anderson. And the real life Dunn admitted that she was a bit skeptical, but 
also, she was a 17 year old girl and kind of excited to be messaging with this celebrity. So she started writing back and eventually their conversations jumped between Facebook to email to other social media platforms. And then finally phone number texting. And the entire time it was Chartier who had also contacted Anderson posing as done, essentially doing the same thing. So the whole time they think they're talking to each other, but all of their communications are going through this third party person who's doing the talking, the chatting, the sending of the pictures. And she also ends up creating a fake best friend of Anderson known as Tom Taylor. She did steal the persona from a real life person, but Tom Taylor and Anderson never actually knew each other in real life. And she would communicate between Anderson and Dunn using Tom Taylor's persona as well. So now she's up to impersonating three people that she's communicating as. Chartier then goes on to orchestrate a real life meeting between Anderson and Dunn by asking Dunn to fly from Los Angeles to Denver. Anderson had played for the Denver Nuggets at the time. And they actually meet one weekend and still have no idea that they are the not the ones that have been communicating with each other online, which just like blows my mind. Although in hindsight done, she said that there were some things when she got there that were said that didn't really like match up perfectly or didn't make sense, but it was not that far off. And the the investigators suspect it's just Chartier was really copying and pasting a lot of the messages, even though she would change things and kind of lead and control them in a lot of ways. But for the most part, the messages were valid. She was just intercepting them and started the whole thing. And changing a lot of things too, right? So that was where the things like, wait, like there were family things that were wrong and sort of biographical or demographic things that were off that they kept coming up in conversation. Like, no, I don't, I don't have a best friend named Tom Taylor or something like that. Right. So a week after this, this weekend that they spent together, after they met, Dunn got really nasty, then violent messages from the best friend, Tom, after Dunn had mentioned something about meeting another basketball player. So this is one of those areas where I think the perpetrator, Chartier, gets triggered and she, acting as Tom, threatens to have Dunn raped and murdered. Chartier had gotten Dunn to send her nudes when she was posing as Anderson. And after all this came to light, Anderson said, well, I was led to believe that Dunn was 21 per the messages I got from her. The age of consent in Colorado is 15 anyway. So he wasn't charged with anything, although federally he ended up being investigated for child pornography charges because at the federal level, it's 18 and over. So you can have consent, ages of consent in a state be lower than 18, but federally for sending sexual images of a child under the age of 18 is an offense. So in 2012, he started to be investigated for that. His team dumps him, of course, and then it was determined that the allegations had been started by, you guessed it, Chartier. Do you remember really like the outlandish excuses we would hear from people oh, about possessing child pornography? If I heard was, this story, I would be like, yeah, bro. <laughs> there was ones where, oh no, I, I was downloading sports stats or, oh no, I was <laughs> downloading my favorite bass fishing sites. There was a whole set and there was just oh, these crazy. photos in there. I don't know how they got there. Oh my gosh. Wow. Crazy, crazy yeah. excuses. I mean, just like if I heard this, I would really just be like, dude, can you just cop to it already so we can start treatment and therapy? Well, I know, but like that's that's the interesting thing here that is really disturbing is like, thankfully, he has been cleared of all 
charges. Of course. And, you know, I was trying to look through the information that you had pulled on this to determine. Now, he says he thought she was 21. Mm-hmm. Or he thought she was 21, so it would have been fine. But was he asking for nudes or had Chartier set that up? How much of those copy paste was she editing well, and change it? And I, you know, yeah. like, did he ever actually ask for images? What were their images on his phone or was all that sort of like smoothed out? I mean, I'm well, hoping that there weren't. I'm hoping I, that he was just set up. I think, let's say even if he had asked for them, yes, federally it would be illegal. I don't think people, like that doesn't gel well with some people. And and I even have some questions about the discrepancies right. because, you know, she traveled there for all we know, they could have had sex and she was 17, which is fine. So you can have sex with somebody and it's not illegal, but then you have a nude image of them and it is. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right? a little wonky. So yeah. I think there's a, yes, fortunately, you know, this, this got cleared up because clearly they're the victim of something. It's not as if though, you know, they were totally in the dark. They did think that they were interacting with each other and met up. But anyways, after the the authorities cleared him, he did get his NBA career back again. He played for a couple of other teams. So in 2015, Chartier pleaded guilty to seven counts of fraud and some other charges, including she got in trouble for sending the nude images of minor. And she was sentenced to 18 months in prison in October of 2015. And she was released a year later in October, 2016. And I got to tell you, that's really, I won't use the word triggering. It is really challenging for me to see these particular examples in this topic that we have brought up for this particular episode. And I feel that these charges are wildly inappropriate for the level of trauma that they have caused. Oh my gosh. And like these are nothing. This and is, these are nothing year? charges and they're getting like, I mean, maybe, well, no, it says she was sentenced to 18 months because, you know, so you can be sentenced to 18 months and then it can be pled down. And if you were in jail for two months, they give you too much credit, two months credit. Right. So she did a out. year. Okay. She did a year. That's I mean, which is a misdemeanor. That's like one misdemeanor here. Right. right. So, and okay. If you're not triggered enough, <laughs> she said that her year in prison helped her come out of her shell and that it helped her ease her social anxiety and forced her to learn how to make eye contact with people. Which I'm sure it's the most interaction she's had with people, actually, probably in That's her whole true, life. That's true, probably. But when prompted about her responsibility, especially for the severity and escalation of these crimes, Chartier blames Dunn for the situation. She said, quote, most people would also ask to talk to the person they were going to see, like talk to them voice to voice on the phone, quote, or Skype them or something. They wouldn't just fly somewhere and not know this person. I didn't tell her to fly down there. I just asked her if she would. So, so deflection, complete deflection total, of response. Yeah, in that. right. So she spent two years on probation after prison and then she's, well, actually this happened, I think before she's actually sentenced, she meets a man online while they were gaming, I think Xbox and he was from New York. She was 30. He was like 23 and they start an online relationship. She's actually just presenting as herself. He ends up going up to Manitoba, meeting her. And the day he meets her in person, he asks her to marry him and they go and get someone and get married in their pajamas in her kitchen that day. So, okay. Yeah. There okay, you have you know, it. Look, you know, I, that part, I have no more information to make any kind of value judgment on. And if she's doing better, that's great. I'm not really, I'm not sure the, the punishment fed, fed the, fit the crime. Once yeah. again, though, I'm, I'm probably going as I usually do thinking about the potential for what could uh-huh. have happened. I mean, like his career could have been ruined if she had hooked him 
you know, put done up to someone else and that was less responsible than sure. he was, something horrible could have happened. But well, again, course, that's a great you know, example. He's got good attorneys, like he has money to at least fight this. Exactly. So I wanted to come back with an example that fits not only certainly breaking several laws, but also got portrayed in the media, a fictional version of this event. I don't know if any of our listeners are familiar with the writer Armistead Maupin. He's an American writer whose most prominent work is a newspaper serial fictional series that was then later turned into a book. It was set in San Francisco and it was called Tales of the City. And Tales of the City was a very big phenomenon in the San Francisco area when it was being written because it was like this exploration of 1970s and frankly explored sexuality in a number of characters who happened to kind of interact through various relationships. And there was also like a murder mystery and a financial mystery and very well written. And if you haven't read it, I highly, highly recommend it. I made it into, I think the first couple of books into a mini series years ago with Laura Lenny. That was just fantastic. So he's a great writer. He's an established writer. He is a military veteran of the Navy. He's worked on in government. I mean, this is a respected, upstanding guy. So in 1992, Maupin was sent a manuscript of an autobiography or memoir written by a young man named Anthony Godby Johnson. And he supposedly was a 14-year-old male who asserted that he had been sexually and physically abused by his parents since childhood. And he had been rescued by a social worker who was his adopted mother. And he wrote a book about it called Rock in a Hard Place, One Boy's Triumphant Story. While the story alone was intriguing, Maupin felt sure that this guy's, this young man's um, assertions were completely believable. They were they were veritable because the draft of the book or the galleys as they're known in publishing, it included a forward by a very well-known novelist, Paul Monette, who was also a very close friend of Maupin's. And the book draft also included a postscript by Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. What? So, I know, <laughs> those right? Those don't sound like they go together. <laughs> I know, but it's so it's this uplifting story, this survival uh, story of grit and determination and family love and blah, blah, blah. And okay. so I, I can see how you could get drawn into it. Okay. So given all the confirmation by these trusted sources, Maupin brought into the story. He became so impressed with the maturity of Anthony's writing and felt that it was so uplifting and inspiring about a person being rescued. And then also mm. having to deal with an HIV infection that he had gotten because of his abuse. Right. So, you know, as an adult gay man, he's thinking, here's this poor young man, you know, this teenager who has been dealt this horrible set of cards in life, and yet he's managed to survive. So he reaches out to him and they develop a really close relationship by phone. And so he's talking to Anthony. He's also talking to Vicky. Vicky is Anthony's adopted mother or foster mother. And Maupin's concern for Anthony was really significant because at this time, Anthony was talking about, and in the book, like frequently talking about his significant number of medical issues mm -hmm. that were related to being physically abused as well as his HIV infection. So these included like multiple bouts of pneumonia, multiple bouts of tuberculosis, a stroke, a coma, the loss of a leg, loss of his spleen, and apparently as well, one testicle. So now in reading it, or at least even listening to it, like just the history I have, like you have to understand that at that time, there were no medications and 
if, if you got an HIV diagnosis, unless you were in the tiny, 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 tiny pool of non-progressors, if you started having symptoms like Anthony was alleging to have had, it meant you had a death sentence and Absolutely. you were, you were going to be dead within tops three to four years. So that's, even though that's pretty unbelievable, and so at this time, sticks with it. Is Montpan trying to get his book published and helping him in that area too? Oh yeah. yeah. I mean like the book and the book did get published too. So he continues his phone friendship. And then he was joining the conversations with um, his life partner at the time, Terry Anderson. And Terry Anderson had had very good conversations with Anthony and also several conversations with Vicky, the foster mom, adopted mom saying, you know, what can we do? Is everything okay? And after several conversations, Terry gets a little suspicious and he's struck by these similarities of the two voices. Anthony and Vicky sounded a lot alike. And it's noted in several articles over the years that Anthony's vocabulary, as he got comfortable with both of these adult men, got really raunchy, like very sexually explicit for a kid that was really only in his mid-teens. Mm. I mean, and even in the consideration of a, a child that's been exposed to sexual abuse, because we can, sometimes yeah. kids can be way, they can be matured too early with these inappropriate exposure to sexuality or sexual abuse, but this is not what we're talking about here. So Terry's suspicion continues to grow about whether or not Anthony's actually a real person, and it causes friction between him and Maupin. Maupin becomes increasingly determined to believe and prove that Anthony exists and that he's real. And so he starts putting pressure on Vicky, like, hey, it's really, it's time to meet. And she's constantly evading and making excuses, canceling meetings, and even saying like, make, like, no, he's so ill, he can't possibly meet you. His immune system is just destroyed. He has to live in this contained environment. And at that point, Maupin is going, well, nobody survives that long. Yeah. At this time, it was a, like I said, it's a death sentence. You can't survive. So there were many other people that were starting to get involved. And certainly many people that have written about this particular case since then that have said at the time that it would have been absolutely medically impossible that Anthony, if he was a real person, could be alive, given that he had supposedly now had HIV exposure, AIDS, or not, well, the HIV exposure and AIDS are two different things, so I need to differentiate that. But he had asserted that he had active AIDS for almost 20 years. And all the, the symptoms. Time, all the symptoms, right. He has. And at that time, most longtime survivors living with HIV that had not developed AIDS could survive, but the medications that made it a manageable condition were nowhere near development at this point. So Tony Anthony was on the phone connecting with a lot of people on a regular basis, not just my pan and his partner, including a former nun and a rabbi. And this rabbi comes all the way from Israel to see Anthony and Vicky turns him away at the door and says, no, 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 you, you can't. Whoa. And every time my pan tries to go to this little apartment in Union City, Vicky is like, oh no, he's deteriorating. You can't see him, but she would continue to send pictures of, of the child every once in a while that didn't quite match up. And at one point he said, but I thought you said he was sick. So then they get a photo that's like taken in a dark room of like somebody sitting on a bed with a cap pulled down really low. Oh, real man. sketchy, totally, totally sketchy. It got to the point where Anthony's increasingly dramatic story became an ABC special, like an after-school special that was about abused children, and it was hosted by Oprah Winfrey. And in this, this particular presentation, 
there was a voiceover and Anthony was played by an actor and it was just seen by millions of people. Holy shit. He catfished all of America. He did. Yes. He (laughs) quote unquote. So his autobiography made claims that his bio parents were arrested and tried and uh, imprisoned for abusing him. And his father had been a policeman who had died in prison after the conviction. And Vicky was telling people, including Maupin, that she was preserving his privacy because a rogue gang of police officers was still seeking revenge on both of them. So here's the thing. There are no social service records that support any of her assertions of adoption or fostering. There are no state prison records of a police officer incarcerated and expiring in custody following trial for those crimes. So it's starting to pile up, but this Mm -hmm. is before social media. You know, this is before cell phones and and social media sites where you can do this kind of research easily, but there's more and more attention brought to it mainly because there's the insertion that his father was law enforcement. That Uh. was a big mistake in doing this because law enforcement is tracked, right? There are records. So it was discovered finally after a lot of research that her real name, instead of being Vicki Johnson, was Joanne Vicki Fraginal. She asserted that she had given over Anthony to another caretaker in 1997 because she was moving to Chicago to marry a child psychologist who was running a group practice. So you're protecting him, protecting, protecting him, and boom, you just decide to drop him with someone. Right. And you can't tell anybody who you've left him with. So suddenly she's gone from one state and now she's in Chicago. But get this, Zachheim had a horrible reputation as well. He was indicted for abusing child patients at a treatment center for troubled kids in 2004. And while he was acquitted for charges against him on that, there was just wasn't enough hard evidence. He was charged with a felony count of practicing medicine without a license because he was telling everybody he was a psychiatrist. And he had three misdemeanor counts of battery for inappropriately touching the male children at this facility. Oh my gosh. So this is a psychologist that she ran away to marry. He was a real person. Right. So she's been supposedly taking care of Anthony, getting all these people around the country, including Amistad Maupin, involved in this ruse. And then she just drops it and like, oh no, he's fine, but he doesn't want to talk to anybody. And I can't give you any contact information. And she goes and starts this other life. And so even though he wasn't Zachheim, Dr. Zachheim was not charged in that case, just like a year later, he was found to have been running like a huge Medicaid scam. And he was telling people that the reason he wanted to help children so much was because of his relationship with Anthony. Anthony. Ugh, who gross. had never existed, right? Mm. Or who was at least people are starting to think he didn't exist. So in 2007, 2020, basically was just laid out all this new evidence that Anthony was Vicki Johnson's fictional creation. And the photo of Anthony that now is on national television, there's a guy that comes forward and says, hi, my name is Steve. That's my childhood picture. That's me. Oh my God. That's not Anthony. And then furthermore, when they go and they question him and they're showing him pictures of Vicky, he goes, that's my fourth grade teacher. What? Yeah. So she was uh, a fourth grade teacher at Sacred Heart and she had a great reputation and a bad reputation at the same time. The kids loved her because she was very childlike and engaged. Mm -hmm. And the adults were all skeeved out because she was dramatic 
she over committed herself to things and then wouldn't be mm. able to follow through with them. And parents said over and over again, I don't like that she takes so many pictures of my kids. Oh, so yeah. she took Red pictures flag. of a lot of children. So here's a quote from one of the interviews. There seems to have been a bottomless mythomaniac need for pity and attention on Vicky's part. The teachers at the primary school where she briefly worked in the 80s have attested to that. I think she was profoundly lonely and alienated, a geeky woman child who never fit in at school, at work, or among any of her charismatic, Sinatra-loving Cuban-American family. There was also a deep-seated love-hate relationship with people whom she perceived to be cultural elites. Vicky and Tony loved getting attention from them just as much as they loved getting one over on them. Wow. So interesting. Okay, so here's yeah. another thing to get interesting. Then we're going to go back to Dr. Zakheim. Dr. Zakheim is awaiting his prison sentence for uh -huh. Medicaid fraud. He dies of a heart attack. So he's gone, never oh, serves any okay. time. Vicky disappears. Nobody to this day knows where she is. There are reports no. of her death, but there are also many people online who feel like she faked her death and took off because of everything Whoa. that had gone on. That's Interestingly enough, like just to tie this again. So Maupin finally came around. He wrote a screenplay that was made into a movie about 15 years ago called The Night Listener, which mm -hmm. I highly recommend. It's not the greatest movie, but it is really chilling and unnerving. And it is about this whole experience of being catfished for sympathy. Yep. And Tony Collette plays the Vicky character. I think she's terrifying in it. Like wow. when she is, when she realizes that she's being found out, uh -huh. she just responds with this unbelievable hysterical rage that he's kind of breaking down the, the ruse that she's been perpetrating on people. I think it's just fascinating. One interesting thing also, another thing about Maupin, which is fascinating, is back in the day, he got into it with Toshi. What's the guy's name? Oh, yeah. Uh, Dave Toshi, the that's investigator it. from yes. the Zodiac Killer. Because he had a good relationship with Toshi. He liked Toshi. He had a good relationship with him. He had a fictional version of him in his Tales of the City stories. Uh -huh. And Toshi had written him a, a fan letter like, hey, thanks for putting me in. I appreciate it. And then Maupin realized like that one of the Zodiac Killer's letters matched the handwriting that he had sent him. So it really completely. Yeah, he called him out. his career because he called him out. Yeah, said he was he was trying to seek attention by keeping the investigation in the news and things like that. Right. They And they portray that in that great movie, the Zodiac movie with Mark Zodiac. Ruffalo is in that, I think it was yeah, 2007. Jake yeah. So yeah. these are some great examples. There are, unfortunately, there are thousands of examples of catfishing out there. Dr. Phil oh has God. one practically every other week. <laughs> there was a horrible one out of Alaska I found where this girl killed her best friend for $9 million that was promised to her by the person that was catfishing her oh, oh my like oh horrible yeah like okay, murder for hire catfishing stuff well Ugh. one of the ones on dr phil is a young woman that they finally get on the show and she has catfished family after family that can't have kids and that she was going to be 
not a surrogate mom, but give that she was pregnant and she was willing to give her children up and she just wanted her kid to go to a good home and elaborate, like really elaborate, like sonogram pictures and blood tests and all these things. And she would just lead these people into it. And then they have the cameras on this young woman. And again, like Dr. Phil does, clearly somebody who is significantly mentally ill. Like we're talking all of these affect presentations that are really, really bad. It's like, why? I know it's a good story. One of the things that was interesting is that the, one of the victims, a, a young couple, the woman goes, well, I'm sad and I'm angry, but I also feel really sorry for her. Like. Sure. I know what it's like to, I'm, I'm going through this loss right now. She must be going through something really horrible. I feel badly for her. Uh-huh. So, I mean, that's lovely that someone in that area of She loss, brought some empathy. She could bring some Jeez. empathy and compassion, but like, oh, I don't think that should have been presented. I don't think uh, that oh. would be a, but you know, Dr. Phil's got to keep the numbers coming in. So yeah, there I you guess. go. What else you got in the media? We got Catfish the movie. We talked about right, that. Right, and the TV series. And the so, series, fascinating. I want to let you know, I sacrificed myself for this podcast, Scott. Why? And I what, watched... did you, what did you do? Oh my God. Did you kill somebody <laughs> for $9 million? No, it's worse than that. I watched a holiday <laughs> romantic comedy oh, no. on Netflix. <laughs> that came out 2021 for Christmas called Love Hard. And I thought I'll sit down and watch this because it's about catfishing. And But is it like, oh, sweet catfishing? Like, oh, it all works out well. (laughs) Of course. Of Of course course. it does. (laughs) Yes. This woman from LA is catfished by this hot dude in Lake Placid, New York. And that's where Lake Placid is, right? New York? Yes. And she flies out there to spend Christmas with him. And it turns out that it's some other dude living in a basement with his parents, even though they have a gorgeous craftsman house. And of course. Spectacularly decorated. And they're a lovely family. But the, the guy whose pictures that he was using and the persona actually lives in the town. And so she's like, well, then I'm going to try and get that guy to like me since I'm here. So she ends up kind of doing this persona that's not hers to be like this outdoorsy girl and And to get the attention of the hot guy. And of course it all goes to shit. And she realizes she's in love with the guy that catfished her. And there's this whole like love actually moment at the end. And (laughs) sort of Stockholm syndrome. Now did they, did they have the actor who's living in in mom and dad's basement? Does he look like crap? And then he cleans up magically at the end or something. Ooh, interesting. Not like a big makeover transformation, but you know, she tells him like, you have great eyes and you have really great teeth. Like that's what you need to show when you go on social media or on a dating site to meet someone. And so then he does, um, and makes, you know, puts out really nice pictures of himself. And then she realizes he's the one. So it was my sacrifice of 2022 already. You're welcome. But here's, here's (laughs) the good part of what you did is you brought up Lake Placid, which is also the name of a horror movie, which also has a cameo by an amazing woman who just passed away, Betty White. Oh my gosh, circle, Betty. What? I mean, look, for as most of the listeners know, I'm of a certain age. I grew up on <laughs> Mary Tyler Moore and then later the Golden Girls. Sure. And boy, Betty White was like an amazing vi- individual all over, like the most genuine, professional, like you can't find anybody talking shit about her. There is nothing right. to say. She right. was just a great woman and had you know, loved animals and was a a huge advocate for animal safety. The outpouring on social media about her has just been lovely. 
Oh gosh. I mean, she truly, truly a national treasure and just hilarious and not afraid to say anything. So I love that. So if they had put love hard with Lake Placid, <laughs> like done a mashup I might have Christmas that. horror story, that would be great. That'll be next year's holidays. We're going to do all Christmas horror movies. There you go. Talk about I, the killers in those. That's what we'll do. I know. I totally had to like cleanse my palate afterwards and started watching the the Times Square killer Netflix show after this. Oh, I just got <laughs> notification. Maybe I'll watch that tonight. Last year, there was a show that I, I fast forwarded through it because it was so terrible, but I had to see what the ending was. It was called Clickbait on Netflix. And oh yeah. Is it, it bad? Was, it was like, yeah, it was, it was it looked awful. Bad. And this guy thought he was having an online affair with someone. And there was like this weird third party catfish communicating for them. And then it turns into like this whole sinister, like whatever thing. But it kind of reminded me of the story I did with Chartier, just because there was this third party person talking for the both of them. So it was terrible though. Don't watch it. Not worth it. (laughs) All All right. right. This has been great. Catfishing is done. You are now going to take care of yourself so that you don't get sick before your trip, right? Yes, I am. I am. And I'm going to try and keep my streak going of not getting sick for however many years now. Good. All right. I had my head cold, which was completely doable compared to everything else. Everybody stay safe. Omicron is still here. Wear a mask, social distance, wash your hands, do everything you need to do. It's not over. Get boosted. Please get boosted. One last thing, skincare. You're supposed to remind me. Oh, I'm going to remind you, skincare. What were you going to okay. say? Okay, so Scott and I thought of this idea last week. We are putting a page on our website that is going to be all Amazon links for a few different categories, including when we go off on our little skincare corner on uh, <laughs> Get Vocal, our live streams. It, Scott, didn't you just have someone this week ask you what collagen mix you put in your coffee? It was so cool. Yes. On <laughs> Facebook, one of our listeners wanted to know that. And I gave her the whole MCT coconut oil concoction I do. So yeah, that's a great idea. And maybe maybe you and I can do one episode of Get Vocal where we give ourselves a needle facial oh, on my camera. God. You can hear Could me scream imagine? like a baby <laughs> as I rake my, that thing across my face. But really, we're going to have, we're having a web page developed that is going to have Links to like that fun stuff. Also books, recommendations, and also ones that you hear on the podcast. So you can go straight to there and find it and buy it if you like, as well as just like some fun, true crime psychology gift ideas yes, and products, you know, just with Christmas being, you know, so close in my head, those are some things that people look for or that we have while we're out and people ask us where we got them. So that is coming very soon under construction. Oh, that's a great idea. We'll let you know when it's out. Now you've reminded me of another thing. Okay. I can't remember. I'm going to go look through all the emails and see if I can figure out who gave me this recommendation. I just finished on this trip down South a couple of days ago. Well, not South, East out to Palm Springs. Mm -hmm. I finished The Killer of Little Shepherds. That was oh. recommended by one of our listeners. I'm so sorry I'm forgetting your name. You guys get this book, buy it new, get it on Kindle, get it at the library, get it used on Amazon, whatever. It is another one like Hidden Valley Road that I think should be absolute required reading if you're interested in true crime and forensic psychology, because nice. this is all about the actual real historical development of medical forensics and criminology 
all taking place in France right before the turn into the 20th century. Absolutely fascinating, brilliantly written. We'll talk about it more in an upcoming episode, but whoever gave me that recommendation, thank you so much. Oh, good. Yeah. Maybe when we do our vintage series again, we can talk about some of that because I know we we touched on it a bit last year. So, yeah. All right. We promise. That's it. Thank you for joining us. Happy 2022. And we'll see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye-bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our podcast production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Essery of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is used via a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use his great music. Please check out his amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit follow so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first to be notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening, and please join us each Saturday afternoon following the episode drop for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on Get Vocal entitled Behind the Couch. Thanks for listening, and join us next time. 